episode 12 of the DNC podcast. It's the Friday edition and we are back better than ever. Dust, how's today treating you? I'm jacked, man. I know last week you proclaimed that Fridays are back. And for me, you'll get into it in a second, but I love the content today. There's a lot of exciting stuff I know the viewers are going to love. So I'm pumped, man. How's your Friday going? It's amazing. It's Friday. Who doesn't love Friday? Uh, But coming up on the podcast today, has Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, finally come to his senses or has this delay to the start of the 2020 season had an impact on the future success of the league? We're also going to get into some memories. And in life, we all have memories. We can recite and remember certain things that have impacted us on a large scale. We remember where we were, what we were doing, who we were with. And today, Dustin and I are going to get into the three most memorable sporting games that we've experienced in our lifetime. And we know that there are some that came before us, but we're just going to talk about the ones that we personally have experienced yeah, man, I'm super, super excited about these topics today. But before we get into baseball, there's something I text you like right before the show, like, hey, bro, there's something we have to talk about. And for me, that's the all-hype team of 2020. And when I say all-hype team 2020, I mean the Baltimore Ravens. I was on ESPN yesterday, Fox Sports the day before. You got Colin Cowherd saying they're going to go 16-0. You have guys from NFL Network saying they're going to go 14-2. And I'm sitting here like, what are you talking about? Like the same people that said the Browns are going to win the Super Bowl last year, you know, shout out Max Kellerman. The the team goes six and 10. It's like, you look at the Ravens, you look at the division they played in the Steelers, you know, Mason Rudolph quarter, you know, Ben Roethlisberger's out for the season. The Bengals were like historically tanking, like throwback to the lions, you know, trying to get Matthew Stafford, right? They benched Dalton early in the season. And to me, it's like, the one thing you can say about sports is like there's trends. Historically, you see trends happen year after year after year. And for me, like when I see Baltimore and I look at their success and, you know, my take, this has nothing to do against Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson, historically last year, when you look at his numbers, like his numbers were absolutely off the charts. But for me, like there's so much that goes into football that isn't off of numbers, right? For me, it's like you look at the Ravens. No one were expecting the Ravens last year to go 12-4. and four. Most people were ranking either the Browns or the Steelers to win the division. And the Ravens run away with it because the division was, you know, arguably one of the worst divisions when you look at how the teams played. Not off of talent, but how the teams, you know, kind of developed uh, as the season went along. And I have a few other talking points I want to talk about, but let me let me get some of your thoughts on it before I, before I go away with it. Yeah, they are the all-hype team because last year, and you you actually called it, I was pretty high on Cleveland, not from the standpoint of their talent on paper was so elite that I was just expecting them to be a great team. It was based on the success that Baker had had in his rookie year. And I thought, okay, if he can build on this success, then this team can be pretty good. They added Odell Beckham. They added Olivier Vernon on the defensive side of the football. They got Kareem Hunt from Kansas City, who I know didn't come back until later in the season due to a suspension. But I thought, okay, this team has two running backs, two receivers, David Njoku at tight end. They have a pretty decent offensive line. Not great, but not the worst. And I just watched Baker not read defenses properly. He would go through one read and then throw the ball. Look for Odell, throw the ball, whether it was double coverage or triple coverage. And I just went, wow, I didn't expect for them to take him personally to take such a step back and regress 
but I did not expect them to be necessarily a division winner. But I thought maybe they'll squeak into a wild card spot at nine and seven. And that was with Freddie Kitchens, who was a first time head coach. But again, winning pedigree matters. If you look at cultures within organizations, they matter. And historically, the Browns are a horrible franchise from top to bottom. And so it's made me look at Baltimore this year in a different light. I think it's easy to say they're going to be an elite football team because they added Calais Campbell. Lamar Jackson's coming off an MVP season. They've got a lot of returning starters. They have a really good offensive line. They run the football really well. Lamar doesn't turn the ball over too much. And if they run the ball, play great defense, they're probably going to win a lot of football games. But if you look at their team historically, right, going back to 2015, they went 5-11. and 11. In 2016, they went 8-8. Eight and eight. And in 2017, they went 9-7. and seven. And then the last two years, they won the division. So there's really not a long history of Baltimore being a consistently great franchise. I think for being a small market team, they've overachieved winning two Super Bowls. And they've had elite talent like Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. But historically, they're kind of up and down. And so when you look at the AFC North, the Browns were bad last year. The Bengals, like you said, were historically bad. The Steelers were on like their 12th quarterback. Everybody was hurt. Juju was hurt. James Conner was hurt. And so I thought Mike Tomlin should have got coach of the year. Just the fact that they went eight and eight with the amount of injuries they dealt with was was incredible. But Baltimore this year, the fact that Colin Coward could say they were going to go 16 and 0 and it's really not that big of a stretch is absurd. It's absolutely ludicrous because defensive coordinators, we talked about this earlier on in I think episode two, that their offense is going to be minimized by the defensive coordinators. They have a whole year of tape. They know exactly what they're going to do. Do I think Lamar is going to get his? Yeah, absolutely, on a level. But I think we've seen this exact story before with the San Francisco 49ers where Greg Roman was the offensive coordinator and Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback. And I think Colin Kaepernick was a better passer of the football than Lamar Jackson is, but I think Lamar's a better athlete. And so it only took a couple of years before Colin Kaepernick really was average statistically. And so I think Lamar will not necessarily drop to average but I see them going nine and seven, maybe 10 and six. Steelers are going to be much improved. They get Big Ben back. The Browns, it's, this is do or die for Cleveland. If they don't win this year, then I really don't know what else to say. The Bengals, I think, are going to be much better than people think. Joe Burrow, I believe, will have a really solid season as a rookie. And hopefully, um, you know, they win maybe two to three more games. But I just don't see how everybody thinks Baltimore is the greatest team in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you're hearing absolutely no hype from the Chiefs. Like the reigning Super Bowl champions, right, is basically bringing back their whole roster. And Patrick Mahomes, to his point, finally knows how to read a defense, which is crazy you can have that type of a career to this point and not know how to read a defense, right? But for me, like when I look at Baltimore, like I'm not taking anything away from Baltimore. I'd still probably say they're like a top five, you know, team as far as you look at their their makeup from their roster, their coaching staff, but like it's so funny how like recently biased like mainstream sports entertainment is. I mean, you look at you think of the fact that you know before last season, before Lamar Jackson actually got like the starting nod, John Harbaugh was going to get fired. Like he was on the edge of yep. losing his coaching job. They get Lamar in there, he basically sparks you know the the, the team. This year, you know the first year really like Greg Roman 
really scripting the offense around him, and no one knew how to defend that. And they completely dominated the, the league. I mean, they ran over a number of good teams, but then they get to Tennessee. And I mean, people talk about this all the time, week in and week out in the NFL, the amount of adjustments you're making to each specific team is very minimal because you only have two or three days to really prep. You get to a playoff scenario and yeah, Lamar had a lot of really good yards second half when they were coming from behind, but Tennessee, within my opinion, not like the greatest, you know, athletes and individual talents on the defensive end, like really limited him. And you look at the division, the division was really down. down. So to your point, you have to think Pittsburgh is going to be better. Cincinnati is going to be better. Cleveland's going to be a little bit better. And so my thought is like, even if the Ravens are good, they go 10 and six because the division's better. And then historically, like, it has nothing to do with like Lamar Jackson specifically. It's more a gimmick offense. Like you mentioned, the Niners, first year Colin Kaepernick fully ramped in, 13 and 3. They looked like they were going to take the NFL by storm. The next year they go 8 and 8, and like that whole team just falls to the wayside. We even saw it more recently with the Rams, right? Sean McVay takes over that offense. He's changing the way everyone's going to play football. He gets literally five head coaches jobs because of his one year they go 13 and three play new england and obviously in my opinion even as a patriots fan probably the most boring super bowl in the history of super bowls right can't do anything offensively and then the next year they can't even make the playoffs and so for me it's not that i think baltimore is going to be bad but to crown them this early in my opinion it's just like, hey, I, I want to be hot take guy. There's nothing going on in sports right now. There's nothing to talk about. How do I stay relevant? And it's like, you know, give insight, talk about different things, but just to make these outlandish claims when like, it's it's annoying enough that there aren't sports going on. So then when I want to find out something about sports, I don't just want hot take guy. Like, come on, right. give me something. Right. Well, and if you remember back when Colin Kaepernick burst onto the scene, it was the same conversation. They were saying the same things hey, this guy's changing the way the quarterback position is played. This guy's going to forever change how we scout the quarterback position. And he's not even in the league anymore. So again, it's not so much that Lamar Jackson can't play in the NFL. He's obviously proven that. But like you alluded to, this offense, even go back to Miami, right? That just popped into my mind. If you go back to Miami, when they first started running the Wildcat, thank you, with Ronnie Brown and Ricky Williams, everybody was like, this is new. This is fresh. And they had a lot of success with it for a small amount of time. And then it went away. And look, football is played a certain way. I'm not opposed to change. I think change is great. I don't have any negative thing to say about Lamar Jackson simply because I don't want the game to change. And I don't want the way the quarterback position is played. The quarterback position is already different than it once was. I mean, you're not drafting statues anymore. You're drafting guys that are athletic. I mean, Look at, look at Patrick Mahomes. Look at Carson Wentz. Look at Deshaun Watson. I mean, all these guys are really athletic. Dak, these guys are athletic. So the position has changed. But again, we have to look at it from, from, a, from the standpoint of knowing the actual X's and O's of the game. And these are the best athletes, in my opinion, in the world. The guys, these guys are, these middle linebackers are 6'3", 230, 240, and they're running 4'4", four, 4'5". Four, four, it's absurd. So what you were able to do in college doesn't necessarily translate to the NFL long-term. Chip Kelly now, it seems like it was ages ago, and it now seems like with him being the head coach at UCLA that he can't even coach anymore. It's like UCLA is not even relevant, but he was the greatest thing since sliced bread at Oregon. So 
again. And he even had that one year at, in Philadelphia with Nick. The first Nick year. Foles, or like Nick Foles, I think it was like twenty-one to like twenty-nine to one interception ratio. I mean, don't quote me, but I know it, it was, was like twenty. Astronomical yeah, it was like gap, twenty. Right? It was like twenty-seven and two or something absurd. Had an incredible yeah, and season. It, like, yeah, and it's like you know, teams you know were had no idea how to defend it because it was so like gimmicky. And that's my thing. It's like you'll see these t- these these styles of offense come to the league and they take the NFL by storm. But it's almost like you have to win the Super Bowl that year because if you don't, now every team has film on you. I mean, if there's one thing going for Baltimore, it's the fact that there's a COVID outbreak and, you know, training camp can possibly be, you know, a little bit um, minimized. But you still think these guys are going to have films, are going to be able to do so much, you know, on the whiteboard. You're not practicing in pads full time any, anyways anymore. But yeah, I mean, to me, the idea of them going 16 and 0 when it's only happened twice historically, it's. It's just a bad take, man. It's I just feel like in today's society, people throw around words like they're nothing and it diminishes the value of the word. So, I mean, two teams have done it and both of those teams were elite. They were in two completely different eras. You have the Miami Dolphins and the New England Patriots, but that New England Patriots team, that's a little bit more recent. I think a lot of us can remember that. I mean, they were setting records all over the field. So Baltimore didn't do that last year. Lamar Jackson did it from an individual standpoint, but as a team, they weren't setting records all across the field. So anyway, you mentioned something about being a hot take guy. Here's another hot take. The MLB seems to not understand how to see the bigger picture because Rob Manfred said that he was not going to come back with any sort of counter offer to the players. And now they have. And it doesn't surprise me because like we mentioned, Dust, that if they didn't get something going, this was going to have a long-term effect on the game of baseball because the majority of their revenue is ticket sales. Well, due to COVID, that's going to be heavily impacted. So you have a lot of young talent in Major League Baseball. I think now more than really ever, Mike Trout, uh, Ronald Acuna, um, Chris Bryant, um, Carlos Correa, uh, Christian Yelich, Cody Bellinger. I mean, all these young guys that really you could build your brand around and they failed to do that. And then you're having a dispute with the players over how much money they're going to get paid. Look, at the end of the day, without them, you don't have a leak. So in my opinion, the players are always going to have somewhat of the majority leverage in any discussion or argument. But the new proposed offer is going to be a 60-game season with full prorated salaries, which is big because that's what the players were bargaining for, and I think they do deserve that. They don't need to be paid their full salary. If they're going to play 60 games, you get paid for those 60 games. And again, you have to remember, in baseball, there's no salary cap, so every player is going to get their money. It's fully guaranteed. It's like the NBA. So it's not like you're not going to get this money. You'll get it later, okay? Maybe pause on buying a yacht this year or taking a luxury vacation. Like it's okay. It's 60 games. You'll get through it. We'll all get through this and you can come out on the other side of this with all the money that you're being promised anyway, contractually. Yeah. I think it's brutal when you look at 60 games in 70 days. Like it's I don't insane. care how much, I don't care how much you like a sport. That's just brutal. I think the, one of the funny things to me is like money aside, at least initially on, I think it was, um, I forget 
who was the pitcher on the Rays who was talking about injuries? Uh, Snell? Uh, Blake Snell. Blake Snell, Blake yeah. Snell. So, yeah, his original take was, hey, man, I don't like the reduced season because, you know, I can possibly get injured. Well, 60 games in 70 days, that's like asking for an injury to happen. I mean, not as much to pitchers because you still have the days off, but for a positional player, you think of your hammies, you think of your shoulder, stuff like that. To me, that's like the big, like, ugh, like, that would kind of freak me out. Everything else makes sense, though. Like, season starts July 19th, so you still have, you know, enough time to get in shape. If you're a professional athlete, you should have been training this time anyways, trying to be in shape. And even if you take a month off and have a little bender, it's not like you're, you know, in horrible shape, right? The full prorated salaries, to me, that should have never been an issue. You play 40 games, your salary should be prorated to 40 games. I never got the commissioner's take on or not the commissioners, but the owners take being so against that. And I think the players asking for that was justifiable. And I think the expand the expanded playoff structure is going to be interesting. I think the one the playing wild guards for baseball games are always really fun because it's so exciting. You'll see three or four aces in a game. I don't I don't know what's going to happen next. I think to the point you mentioned early, I think this really if it doesn't push baseball back, it continues to be the reason why they're not getting into the major sporting realm of basketball and football. Because as we mentioned, there was this huge time period where nobody was doing anything. And the fact that the NBA could figure out how to have their whole league play in Disney World and you couldn't figure out a revenue spread, you know, spread is the reason why baseball is baseball. And unless you live in the Midwest, you don't really watch the sport. Yeah, so the, the union is expected to counter the league's offer, and they're just essentially going to ask for more games with the potential goal of settling at 65 games. So hopefully they can just settle, get this thing going, because at this rate, they could have been really the only sport playing, and they could have got a jump start on their season with ratings, with even people that don't like baseball or don't watch baseball would have watched it just simply because people miss sports. So... It was just a real big slip up by Major League Baseball, the owners, Rob Manfred, and you know the players do play a part in that as well, but hopefully they do settle this, they get going, they get started, and we just forget about all this and it becomes kind of a distant memory. And so anyway, as we alluded to in the beginning of the show, we're talking about our three most memorable sports, sport games that we've watched in our lifetime. And Dustin, I think... You need to do the honors of kicking us off with this because I think this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, so we'll start off with our number one game that we really feel like impacted our life growing up. So a little backstory on me, you know, I didn't grow up necessarily watching sports. I didn't really get into football until, you know, seventh, eighth grade. And that was kind of when USC was at its prime. And so for me, not only the game that really like got me into sports and part of the reason I'm probably doing this podcast today, but... I think to a lot of people, especially people, you know, probably between the ages of say like 25 and 40, this to a lot of them is the best game they've ever seen. And for us, it was USC, Texas and the Rose Bowl. You had so much going on. Um, you gave me a stat pre-show that 61 players that were on the field in some capacity got drafted. I mean, when you think of that, that's a full NFL roster on two teams, like a full NFL roster over the next four years got drafted from that one game. You have Heisman winners, you have, in you know, my opinion, and I think you're so similar, you know, the most explosive player in our generation of college football and Reggie Bush, you had Vince Young, really was kind of the first dual threat guy. Like when you think of it for a while, um, the style he played at, you know, at Texas really led the way for like a Tim Tebow, Johnny Menzel, different players like that. 
Uh, the game was so exciting. It was so back and forth. I don't want to. I don't want to hog all of it. So give me some of your thoughts on that great game. No, it, it's probably to this day the greatest game I've ever watched in any sport. I mean, it was so entertaining from start to finish. Usually, there's kind of ups and downs in games, and it either has like a great start, a so-so middle, and then a great finish. This game was incredible all the way through. And I just remember staying up late and just waiting for this thing to end because I didn't know how it was going to end with either U, you know UT beating USC. And and I think what's, what's important to point out is they both had really long winning streaks going into this game. USC, this is a crazy stat dust. It had been two calendar years since they had lost a football game. So the amount of talent, like you mentioned, that there was 61 players that would be drafted over the next four years played in this one game, 37 from USC and 24 from Texas. And the other thing, like you mentioned, the Heisman Trophy winners. um, So Bush obviously won the Heisman that year. And then Vince Young was the runner up. And then Matt Leiner had won it the year prior. So this game actually featured the top three Heisman vote getters that season, which is crazy. And I remember this, this play specifically, but the Reggie Bush fumble so I was reading up about this prior to the show and I thought this was cool. So I guess he had been practicing this play in practice. Like he had been practicing this lateral pitch and the guy that he had been practicing it with got subbed out during that play that he broke the long run. So the guy he was trying to lateral to hadn't didn't know it was coming, wasn't ready for it, hadn't practiced for it. And it became kind of a, a swinging moment in the game. Um, and I was just going like, is it the moment? Is the stage too big for him? Is he trying to do too much? I just thought, Reggie, you're the best player in college football. There's no reason to lateral the ball there. Keep the ball in your hands. You're the best athlete. Yeah, I remember that day specifically because I know growing up, my family used to go to Mammoth. So we were driving up to Mammoth that day and I was like, I don't care what we do. I just have to be in an area with a TV by this time because I can't miss this game. Like, I'll never forgive anybody if I don't see this game. But that play to me was like, it kind of swung the pendulum for a little bit. Obviously, USC comes back and ends up taking a 12-point lead in the fourth quarter, which we'll get into in a little bit. But that play was crazy. It looked like at that point, USC was just going to blow them out. Like, they score there. They go up 14. It really is going to you know change a lot going on. And yeah, for me, for Reggie, I'm like, like what are you doing? Obviously, having no insight into it being a play they had practiced. I was just like, my mind was blown. But then you look at the game, it was so back and forth. Texas looked like at some point, like, oh, now we're going to get back into it. They're going to run away. And then USC gets up 12 points in the fourth quarter with that great defense they had, still a great offense. I mean, everyone talks about Reggie Bush, but Lindo White, to his credit, at least in college, he was a great runner. I mean, they almost had a 50-50 split. I mean, obviously, Bush had a lot of the big highlight plays, getting the perimeter, the tosses, but Lindo White was a beast running through the middle, you know, you know, just drag linebackers with him. And so they were a team, if you think of like how teams play now, they were a team that was set up to, if you have a 12-point lead, there's probably no other team you want in college football to run out that clock when you have Reggie Bush and Lindo White, unless you're playing Vince Young. Yeah, well, and the play too on fourth down, fourth and one that USC would have essentially clinched the game with Lendell White and they don't get it. Like, I just remember watching that. I'm like, this is over. There's no way Lendell White, like you mentioned, was his ability to run between the tackles. I mean, he was a bowling ball. And so I was like, one yard for this guy. There's no way he doesn't get one yard. And credit to the Texas defense. They stopped him and got the ball back and gave it to VY, Vince Young. And 
Another play too, Dust, that I thought was was a defining moment in the game was, and it was a really bad call. This was absolutely botched and missed. There's no defending that they missed this. But when uh, when Vince Young pitched, so he rushed for 12 yards and then pitched it to Selvin Young, his knee was so clearly down. I mean, when they gave when they showed the replay, I was like, that is a horrific call to make in this type of a game, which led to on that play was a what ended up being a 10 yard touchdown for Selvin Young. And that's a touchdown. I mean, you take that off the board, essentially Texas is done, right? Unless, unless of course, they could have then scored on that drive on a different play. But those two plays, the the lateral fumble from Reggie Bush and then the, the missed call with Vince Young when his knee was so clearly down before he pitched it to Selvin Young uh, were the defining moments, in my opinion, in that game. For me, the one game, and it's, it's the play that everyone obviously remembers, but Vince Young's scramble at the end, all I'm thinking the whole time is like, contain, like, don't rush up the middle. You can't rush up the middle. You no. contain, you making him tackled inside the, you know, inside the numbers. And, you know, I think he eludes one guy, slips outside, and I'm like, it's over. Like, that's his, I mean, I know there was, you know, I think 19, 20 seconds left in the game, but that's as close to a walk-off you can have in football, you know? And it was just, you know, at the time, you know, living in Southern California, kind of being a homer, you know, I really wanted to see USC pull it off. And, you know, but the game was so good, I wasn't even mad. It was just such a good game. It's one of those games where, unless you have a huge rooting interest for one of the teams, you just want a really good football game. And I think, you know, there's been other games you know, over the past, you know, however many years since 2006 when this happened, but that game was just different. It was special. It was electric. And yeah, I mean, it's really one of the games that got me into football. And it's one of the games that I actually compare football games now when I watch them. I'm like, yeah, that was good, but it wasn't USC, Texas. Yeah. In a 2017 interview with Sporting News, Lane Kiffin, then head coach of Florida Atlantic, who uh, was the offensive coordinator at USC. This is what he said, quote, I don't think it will ever leave. People say it was 41 to 38. You did a, you did pretty good on offense, but there's always one play that could have gone a different way to win the game. End quote. We should, quote, we should have won the game. It wasn't about them. It was about us and what we should have done better. And I think that's, that's a valid statement, right? Because USC should have won that game. But Vince Young, it was, every once in a while you see a game and you're like, that guy, it's, happened so many times with Tom Brady and we're going to get into one of those games later, but you go, this game's not over. If you have that guy on the field, you have a chance. And it just felt that way the whole game. Like, even though on that fourth and one, I was like, there's no way this doesn't happen. But I'm like, if it does, if he does get stopped, Texas wins this game. And that's why they didn't punt the ball. That's why they had to go for it. There is nothing I can do, you know, to stop and jump. But, you know, we could spend probably all day on this game, but I think, you know, another thing I think about, and I think you think about as well, when we think about big games is how does it impact people's careers? And I think this game, you could make an argument that the impact that this game had on LeBron's career is more significant than any game that any player has ever experienced. And that's 2000, um, that's sorry, game seven of the Warriors Cleveland's final, right? Crazy yeah, series down three to one. I still remember that picture of LeBron. Um, I think it was after game four with the glasses. He's got the, uh, the old beats headphones. No players ever come back from three, one, obviously, you know, fast forwarding to game seven, they come back, 
But it wasn't just that they came back. It was how many crazy moments there were in this game. Um, there's, you know, the big three that LeBron hits late, getting them up 89 to 87. There's the block heard around the world, right? You have Kyrie at the time. I remember watching the game with my brother and as Kyrie takes that three, I go, what are you doing? Like, it, it's like a Kobe shot. It's one of those shots where someone takes it and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my God. Yeah, he made it because exactly. it's like, it's a horrible shot, but it goes in. So you're like, oh, it was a great shot. But that series... I mean, the series was phenomenal, but then that game seven and the impact that it really has had on LeBron's game since then, to me, absolutely crazy. Yeah, that shot that Kyrie made, there's only a few guys that could have made that shot because it was so off balance. It was almost like a fadeaway, but not quite. And I think we all were like, you said perfectly, no, do not take that shot. That is a low percentage shot. And then it's now known as the shot. And so I think this game specifically was so massive for LeBron's career. It obviously sparked Michael Jordan to release his documentary. So for there's that, there's that point. But I think when you look at LeBron's career, he really should have won four in Miami. And the fact that they didn't, they only went two for two is kind of underwhelming when you think about it, especially since those Spurs teams, even though it was a dynasty, they were really good, really well coached. They still should have won that game. And I think it it really does show how LeBron, Bosch, and Wade weren't the best fit with each other. Like their games weren't the best. Like Wade had to take a backseat in order for LeBron to do what he did. And I, and I think with Chris Bosch, I just don't feel like it, it was almost like, hey, we're going to add this guy because he's, He's one of the top players in the league, but offensive wise and the way the system was built, I don't think he was necessarily the best fit for him. And that showed, I mean, they didn't win the first one against Dallas and then they lost the last one to San Antonio. And the fact that he was able to come back home and deliver on this championship against arguably the one of the greatest teams in NBA history with Kyrie and a bunch of really okay players. I think Kevin Love was an above average player. I think he's gotten exposed since he left Minnesota. And it was really just him and Kyrie. And he really carried that team. And um, I thought, okay, this is going to be the turning point in his career. He's going to now have a chance to surpass MJ. And I know we've talked, I really still do believe that he is a better one-on-one pure basketball from a basketball player standpoint, a better player than MJ. MJ's had the better career, but that's obviously a different discussion. But I thought, hey, this is this is an opportunity for him to now make a run and get two, three more rings. And it just didn't pan out for him. But still, it's going to be something on his resume that if he can get one or two more rings, this is going to be a, a, the series they look back on and go, that was so big. It was so big for the city. It, he... He fulfilled this promise to Cleveland and to that organization to get their first title. And it holds a lot of weight and merit, I believe, in the argument. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the fact that this win had Kevin Durant go to Golden State, you think, all right, like, if he doesn't get this one, you know what happens. But then maybe maybe if Golden State actually wins his series, maybe Kevin Durant doesn't go and LeBron gets two more because he's playing a lesser Golden State. But I think you look at it, Miami, in my opinion – and I think you made a great point, that's a failure. I mean, when you have that team and you only win two out of four, at that time, your career's taken a big, like, 
a big step back. I mean, people aren't even thinking about having you in the GOAT conversation, right? right? absolutely. I think the fit with Wade that you talked about, they really weren't a good fit. Neither of them are great shooters at the time. They were both slashers. One was just 6'9", and one was 6'4", but they were very similar as far as the way they attacked the game. Then he goes to Cleveland, gets a great young superstar in Kyrie Irving, who, in my opinion, he still hasn't really evolved you know, past the point of being a really good offensive threat, but... From a skill standpoint, way better fit. Kevin Love, I think, to your point, was overwhelming. I think how the league's transitioned um, has kind of hurt him, um, you know, having to basically just be like a a jump shooter in the corner. But this series for LeBron, I think it's everything. I think if he loses this series and then loses the next two, at that point, I mean, although three and six, like three wins, you know, six losses doesn't sound good. Two and seven sounds a lot worse. I mean, a lot worse. There's a it's, lot of guys that have won two rings. There's not a lot of guys that have won three. And then if you can get one more this year, so then it's kind of like the Brady-Montana argument, right? Where, you know, I have more losses, but I've been to more. If you can be like, hey, yeah, I've lost six, but I've won four. I've been to 10 finals. I mean, 10 finals, that's a decade of finals, right? And so I think for LeBron, as far as going down in the discussion as a GOAT, he doesn't win this series, you can't even have the combo. And no. it may be still a little early, depending on what he does in the next few years, but he loses this series, com- conversation's over. No, I agree. And that's a great point because with him having two rings, being the caliber of player that he is, it really wouldn't have bode well for him long-term. Um, but the final game that really was... A memorable one for all of us, I believe, was the Super Bowl between the New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons, where famously the New England Patriots came back from a 28-3 deficit, which is the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. We were alluded to this prior to getting into this game, was there's just certain guys where if there's time on the clock, you still have a chance. And when TB12 is under center, you always have a chance. Yeah, for this game, the one thing I learned from this game, I think more than anything, is never throw a party at your house if your team's playing. So literally having a Super Bowl party at my house, I was actually at a new company. So I'd only known these people for maybe three or four months. And, you know, Patriots are down 28-3 and I'm just on the couch. Like I'm not socializing. I'm super awkward. Probably like people feel like I'm like at a super high level of depression, like not talking to anybody. Everyone who was at the party left at halftime. So second half, it's no longer a party. It's Dustin watching the Patriots Falcons with no one at my house. I'm getting text message from my friends being like, bro, it's over. One of my buddies like looked up uh, that I was like, no man, I, I honestly, I think Tommy still got it. Like we just have to score every drive, we have a chance. He, he looks up denial in the dictionary, sends me a picture of it, literally trolling me. And I just remember like, to be completely honest, I always thought we had a chance, but you know, obviously 28 to three, it's a huge deficit. But when Hightower makes that play on Ryan, when they do the drop back play action and we got that stop there, I was like, I don't care that we have to get two more two point conversions and score. We're going to win this game. Like no doubt in my mind at that time that Brady's winning that football game. Yeah. I just, I, I thought the same thing. Like the whole game, I'm like, there's something weird. Like it's not over. Atlanta was steamrolling them like it was crazy I was like I never thought in my lifetime I would watch Bill Belichick get out coached and he's just standing over there in his cut sweater and Tommy is just being 
Tommy and you got Jules and you got Edelman and you've got Amendola, you've got Gronk and all these guys, Sweet Feet, Sony Michelle, or sorry, Sony Michelle came in the next year, but um, but James White, Sweet Feet. And I'm like, okay, even though Atlanta's offense was really elite that year, that was the year Matt Ryan won the Super Bowl, or sorry, the MVP, and Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator, which ended up getting him the head coaching job in San Francisco. Um, and I'm like, I know it's weird to say this. I remember I was watching it with my wife and I was like, I still feel like it's, there's there's too much time left. Like, I feel like this is gonna be one of those Super Bowl moments of the all-time greatest quarterback is gonna bring his team back. And I just really never doubted. It. It's not, I don't wanna act like I, I'm not trying to be hindsight biased. I really did think, okay, there's enough time left for Tom to do his thing. Like it wasn't, it wasn't one of those things where it was five minutes left in the fourth and it was 28 to three and I'm being delusional. Like there was a whole second half. I mean, there was so much time left. And so I was like, okay, you got Bill Belichick, you've got Tom Brady. And as long as you got those two guys, you know, for a fact, they've been in this moment so many different times that they're not going to fold. Like it's not too big of a moment for them. And it, it really proved that it was too big of a moment for Matt Ryan and my, and Kyle Shanahan and the Atlanta Falcons. But it's it's got to be one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time. And I said this to you, it was really boring. Like the first, I'd say the first two quarters, first half was pretty boring. And come second half, I'm like, okay, if this, if this doesn't change, there's going to be, there's probably going to be a good shot that that New England is out, but I think they're going to score and I think they're going to get back in this game. And, um, and they did. So Tommy, if you don't think he's the goat after that one, I really don't know what else to say about that argument. I think for me, what was so exciting is there's been a lot of exciting Super Bowls with the Patriots in it, but they're just normally on the other side of the win column. You look at both of the Giants Super Bowls where the Giants made a whole bunch of big plays late. You look at the Seattle one where they get the pick. Malcolm Butler gets that famous pick to to win that game, but the bobbled catch on the three-yard line behind that, you're like, oh my gosh, another game going down to the wire that New England's going to lose. We finally get one in that fashion. I think my favorite thing was a quote that came from Logan Ryan after the game where he said, as soon as we won the coin and I knew Tommy was going to get the ball, I untied my cleats. I, I love it. He's epic. like, it was, it, it's game. He's like, I, I called game. He's like, I untied my cleats, took off the shoulder pads. I knew we were going to get the dub. And That's an me, all-time power like, move. That's an yeah, all-time power like, move. You know, they had the momentum. It was, it was absolutely crazy. But like you mentioned, it was really hard, you know, having this at three games. So we wanted to do something fun, have a wild card round. And so... One more game made the cut, and this game, honestly, when you think of the impact it had for the city um, for not winning a championship for so many years, the rivalry included, I don't think there's any way you can't bring up the Red Sox, New York Yankees, ACL, um, ALCS game four in 2004, when the Yankees are up four to three, bottom of the ninth. Tell me what happens, Cole. So the Yankees were leading as you mentioned in the bottom of the ninth and this was about to be the dagger. They were down three to nothing in this series. There's absolutely no thought in anybody's mind that the Red Sox would even win this game, let alone go on to win the series. Um, but there was a famous play that happened in the bottom of the ninth where Terry Francona, the manager, he pinch ran with David Roberts 
And everybody knew in the stadium that he was stealing. Like everybody knew. The, the guy Yankees was knew. literally 20, 20 feet off of first base. Yeah. I mean, it was like, there. I, looking at like the video of that, I don't know how he got back. Like, how do you beat that pitch back? He was so far off. He was. And Mariano Rivera was pitching at the time and he... He threw over like three times. He knew it was coming. Jorge Posada, who was the catcher for the New York Yankees at the time, knew. And finally, Mariano throws home and Dave Roberts takes off for second and gets the stolen base. And the place goes absolutely bananas. And he ends up getting driven in off a single by by Bill Mueller. And, um, and And they ended up tying up the game. And then in extras... Big Poppy, David Ortiz goes yard to end the game. Uh, and that sparked the run. And as we know, the rest is history. The Red Sox end up winning that series, being the first team. Another series where uh, no team had ever come back from being down 3-0. And they were the first to do that. And then they ended up sweeping the Cardinals in the World Series for their first World Series title since 1918, which we all know about the curse of the Bambino, which if you don't, the Yankees the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees and hadn't won a title since then. And so it was such a monumental moment for sports, for the city of Boston, for major league baseball. And it's something I'll, I'll truly never forget. Yeah. I think you look at the impact that had, I mean, the, the Yankees historically, they've been dominant, right? I think one of the crazy things about baseball is the fact that there's no cap team by team. And so they've historically paid for players, been really, really successful. Yep. You know, this 2004, you know, sparked the transformation of Boston where for the past, you know, decade or so, they've been relatively consistent where before that, you know, it really was the Yankees, you know, they kind of owned everything. And so it was crazy, I think, for a sports city that had gone through such a drought of, of winning and excitement. It was really awesome. And then I think for me, you know, down 03 ninth inning, do or die. Yeah, you're at, the, to, you're at the very end of your rope. Yeah, and not even to like win on like some like luck play. I mean, to strategically say, you know, if we go, if we're gonna lose, we're gonna lose. You know, the way we 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 play, we're gonna go out there, we're gonna steal bases, we're gonna be aggressive. I don't know how many managers in this current state of baseball does that type of thing. I thought it was absolutely awesome. I mean, that's that's the type of baseball that gets people excited, you know, and that's part of the reason that baseball needs to get back out there and really push these players to be aggressive because the fact that. You know, there's a sport that has somewhat been out of the spotlight, but this game specifically was so big and monumental. It shows that baseball can really still have an impact. They just have to go out there and do the right things. And if you guys haven't seen the 30 for 30 documentary that ESPN does, there's one called The Four Days in October, which is about this exact series. And it's phenomenal. It's one of the best sports documentaries I've ever watched. It's definitely one of the top 30 for 30s uh, for sure. So if you have not watched that, Go watch it if you're a massive sports fan, even if you're not a Boston Red Sox fan. It's incredible the way they did it, the way they told the story. Um, it even gives me chills rewatching that. And that happened, you know, 16 years ago, which is crazy to even think how fast time is flying, flown by. But this is going to wrap up things for episode 12 for the DNC podcast. Again, rate, review, subscribe, share the podcast. We're excited to be able to bring you two episodes per week. Follow us on social media at the Dustin and Cole podcast. Drop in our inbox. Give us some topics, some questions to cover. We will do so on the show. We'll give you a shout out. We want this, again, to be an experience for our community where they feel like they have a voice in our show. We love to to include you. So have a great weekend and stay safe. <laughs>